The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, at the beginning of the year, we always start the new year with a year ahead, a preview and review of what came in the year prior and what's coming up. And in that show, if you recall back in January, we both agreed that 2018 was going to be a pivotal year in the China-Africa relationship because in so many ways we saw the relationship between the Chinese and Africans changing fundamentally. And instead of this being a relationship born and, and really dependent on resource extraction and investment as it has been for much of the past 10 to 15 years, you and I both looked at the future and said, it's shifting in some very unpredictable directions namely around military, around humanitarian issues. And China seems to be broadening its interests in Africa. And at the same time, it seems to be less interested in the trade and the financial relationship. And now with six months out until we get to the forum on China-Africa Cooperation Summit in Beijing, it seems like we'll be able to test whether or not our theories are playing out, in fact. Yes, and we have to keep in mind that 2018 is summit central. So there is the FOCAC summit in Beijing, as you said. There's also the BRICS summit, which is hosted by South Africa this year. A whole host of the G20 is happening. There's a whole host of other summits. So there's a lot of, of these kind of big world stage moments, you know, kind of where we're going to see, you know, what the relationship is like at the moment. And then, of course, everything gets an extra layer of chaos because of the Trump administration, Brexit and all of the other kind of shenanigans going on around the world. So these summits normally are thoroughly dull and uninteresting, and they don't really produce much in the way of anything concrete that we can put our hands around. But this time, I think it's going to be different. And we're going to get a sense of what direction China-Africa relations is going. And so we thought it would be a great opportunity today to step back, review again six months out from FOCAC, and at the same time, take a pulse check of where we are in the China-Africa relationship. And so to do that, we thought we have to get one of the best thinkers on the subject. And we're so thrilled for the first time on the show, Professor Joshua Eisenman, who's an assistant professor at the University of Texas in Austin at the LBJ School of Public Affairs. He's also a senior fellow for China Studies at the American Foreign Policy Council in Washington, D.C. Josh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate it. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. And those of you who are not familiar with Josh's work, he's a frequent commentator on China-Africa relations and Chinese affairs on uh, the BBC, on public radio in the United States. And you also may know him if you are in some various universities around the world, because your textbooks may have been assigned to you because he wrote a book, China and Africa, a Century of Engagement with our old friend David Shin. And that was uh, really, in so many ways, for me, it's the seminal book on China-Africa relations. So uh, again, an honor to have you on the show, Josh. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and it's great to hear you say that. Ambassador Shin and I worked so hard for so many years to put that book together, and it's such a broad kind of opus that it's, I'm glad it actually has some resonance even years later. 
Yeah, it really is the kind of the baseline book for China-Africa relations, where it goes country by country and it kind of examines the key issues. Now, as you look back now, and this is in some ways, let's take your book as a kind of a benchmark from the time that your book came out. And what was that? I'm looking now where the book came out a couple of years ago. It was like 2015, if I recall. Uh, 2012, actually. <laughs> 2012. Okay, time good. Five years, six years, actually, it came out. We're now six months ahead of FOCAC. Where are we in the China-Africa relationship? I usually don't like to start with such a broad question, but I think it's a great way to start our discussion today about some of the key themes that you see shaping this important relationship. Well, that is a great question, but it's also a very broad one. I mean, let me just say that um, our book, which was China-Africa, a century of engagement, was looking at 100 years from 1911, from the revolution to 2011. And so in doing so, it doesn't cover even one minute of the Xi Jinping era. And so the Xi Jinping era has essentially driven a lot of the developments we've seen since then. Of course, the the China-Africa relationship has evolved in interesting ways, as you said in your opening. But I would say that as has been, we found in the book, and as I still believe, China tends to drive the relationship and Chinese politics is the primary pursuit of the Communist Party of China. And so the Chinese political evolution has really changed the relationship in fundamental ways and makes the Paul Mill relationship even more interesting than it even was back in 2011. So if you had to kind of point to a broad response to your broad question, I would say that the Paul Mill relationship, political and military security, that's the kind of emerging area of interest that I think we're going to see more an expansion of relations, because until now, China-Africa relations has been dominated by the economic side, especially most of the work put out have been about development issues, trade issues, even, you know, a lot of the work I've done as well. But I think it's really important now, as the party is really exerting control over foreign policy, to look at the political relationship, the party-to-party relationship, the mill-mill, and of course, basing in Djibouti. And these are issues that in 2011, the PLA was would scoff at you if you suggested they would open a foreign military base. So it's a new normal in politics as well as economics and security on the China-Africa relationship. And if you unpack that a little bit, you, you mentioned the, you know, the importance of Xi Jinping in all of this. And, you know, w- one of the biggest changes since the publication of your book has been the centralization and the coining and then centralization of the Belt and Road Initiative, which, of course, is also the jewel on the crown of Xi Jinping's foreign policy. How do you see the Xi Jinping as a person and as a leader? What kind of effects is he having on the relationship with Africa? Well, I mean, if I could step back a moment, I actually just published an article in Cold War History looking at the Communist Party's relations with African political parties. And the kind of takeaway of that is from 1949 to 1976, machinations within the party actually drove Chinese policy towards African political organizations, such that during the Cultural Revolution, we had a people's diplomacy and after it, We had a different kind of diplomacy. And so I think that what happens in China domestically is an essential driver to understanding Chinese foreign policy period, and especially in the African continent, which has traditionally not been a very important place for China. And because it's been a kind of fourth ring level of importance to China, it's been a playground to some degree where political battles in Beijing can play themselves out, where the Soviets and the Chinese, for instance, can play out a battle, a proxy war, you know, in different locations, including Angola and other things during the 70s. Now, getting to the contemporary question, you know, there have been so many changes just recently to the Chinese government at the NPC. It's almost kind of too early to tell the full impact of Xi Jinping's influence on Chinese foreign policy. 
in some degree, we're still kind of watching it unfold. But I would say that in the first term, you know, he certainly doubled down on the China-Africa relationship. And, uh, you know, he expanded it and is expanding it. For instance, in our chapter in China Steps Out, uh, Ambassador Shin and I looked at the meetings between the Communist Party of China and African political parties over the last decade. And we used the International Department of the Communist Party of China's website. And we counted up the amount of public facing announcements they made. And after the Xi Jinping era, it's undeniable that China is hosting far more African delegations than it's now sending. That's interesting because during the Hu Jintao era, we saw an expansion of China's Communist Party delegations externally. Now we see China hosting more, which gives them a real home field advantage. It reduces the possibilities for corruption and graft. It also enhances the influence and expansion of the party's control over its own diplomats, since what one can do in one's own country and what one can do externally are often two different things. But they've also shortened the duration, for example, of how long Communist Party officials can be abroad to, I believe, five days, including airfare. It, it really reduces their ability to do much when they're on the ground, although the number of those delegations has also fallen. So, you know, China is hosting more. We definitely see uh, kind of reflections of what I call a neo-imperial policy. Uh, not neo-imperialist, but kind of referring back to China as the Middle Kingdom, countries coming to China to pay respects, to honor the leader. You know, this kind of neo-imperial atmosphere at the same time of an expansion of uh, Leninist party controls over the party's own decision-making process. And I think that it has had some negative effects that are palpable. The most obvious of them, in my opinion, has been the Chinese New Year Gala, which had that uh, skit in it about China-Africa relations, which many Africans reacted badly to. And my sense is that that is a, a product of the groupthink mentality. There are plenty of Chinese diplomats who know better, know that that skit was not appropriate. I suppose many people who had seen the skit prior to it knew that it was not, but they didn't say anything, or at least their views were unheeded by authorities. And that means that people may have the knowledge, but is that knowledge actually being incorporated into the policy? You know, because when you have a display like what was there, reminiscent of a lot of the kind of more negative aspects of colonialism and imperialism in terms of the perceptions of Africa portrayed, you have to wonder whether or not all of this political interaction at the elite level level is actually filtering into the relationship in a way that's politically healthy over the long term. And we have seen in Africa that the political relationship has sometimes engendered pushback from African opposition parties and locals who are dissatisfied with this elite to elite relations, which seem to be very cozy. So when Xi Jinping looks out onto the world, he sees in Asia, in the near abroad in Asia, in particularly in the South China Sea, he sees big security threats with the United States right on his back. He sees always with Russia, tension and unpredictability. With Europe, it's about trade and obviously a lot of trade. With Latin America, trade is now larger than it is with Africa. And obviously with the United States, it's trade and politics and military and, and everything wrapped up in one. But I'm curious about what your assessment is of how he sees Africa. This is 54 countries that together do less trade than what China does with Germany. It's less than 5% of China's overall global trade balance. So I often say that if Africa disappeared tomorrow from China's trade balance, it really wouldn't matter that much to China. So what is the value of the relationship in Xi Jinping's eyes, do you think? Well, I mean, I think that's a great point you made, and I'd like to just expand further. 
that while you're entirely right, most Chinese businessmen have nothing to do with Africa, and Africa is a small slice of China's overall trade, it's very important to Africa. Right. So China is the number one trading partner of Africa. So it's not surprising that for Africa, China is much more important in an economic sense than the opposite is true. So I think that you're right to say from Beijing's perspective, the China-Africa trade relationship is not that important. However, I would say that in many ways, a lot of the behavior we saw taking place a decade ago in Africa informed the Belt and Road Initiative in important ways, particularly in Angola and other places, the debt-driven growth model that China has perfected at home. It deployed, maybe not first, but very early to a lot of African countries. And the issue of African indebtedness because of it is now kind of bubbling up to the surface and will probably be on the radar at the FOCAC summit. At least it may be off on the sidelines. These conversations may take place, although FOCAC itself uh, tends to be a very uh, formulaic process. So I don't expect that we'll have much public facing commentary, although I'd be surprised if no conversations took place on the side about the increasing level of indebtedness. But getting to your question precisely, what does Xi Jinping think about when he thinks of Africa? I would step back and I would say, what does the Communist Party want? And what they want is to control China and what they need is legitimacy. And so what African partners provide is external legitimization for China's development model and China's political system. The more African and other foreigners you can have coming to China to kiss the ring, the better off the Communist Party is in terms of legitimizing itself in the views of the world and its own people. So, you know, this having all of these African leaders, you know, talking in using Chinese rhetorical terms, win-win relationship and other, they're using Chinese rhetoric. And that is another way to legitimize the, both the rhetoric and the party that created it and its rule over China. So I would say that the most important thing for the Communist Party is controlling China and the African support for that is maybe not all that recognizable or important to us as Americans uh, or me as an American or other foreigners. But for the Communist Party, it's very important. And one thing you can use to point to that is how many African countries were asked to make comments about China's control uh, or uh, rightful control over the South China Sea. Right. Why do we care what Rwanda says about who controls the South China Sea? Well, we care or the Communist Party cares because it legitimates their claims to be able to say dozens of countries around the world believe that we're correct, even if those countries themselves have no dog in that fight. Similarly, with Tibet, when you've got African countries not allowing the Dalai Lama in or kinds of issues related to Uyghur issues and other uh, domestic problems, they sometimes play a role in the China-Africa relationship because they're largely irrelevant to the African side. But for China, they're issues of central concern. So for Africans, they're easy giveaways. We saw this for a long time with Taiwan until Taiwan basically disappeared from the continent except for a couple of relationships. But I would say politics is in the lead. Politics is always in the lead with the Communist Party. Anyone who thinks that economics is in the lead for the Communist Party doesn't understand the Communist Party. It is a political organization. It's a political party. So for them, the goal has always been politics. And the economic relationship always serves the political relationship. Similarly, the expansion of military is also an expansion of the political relationship by other means. So I think that we've given not an overemphasis on economics, but perhaps an underemphasis on the politics. And what we need to do is really ask ourselves what's behind the Belt and Road Initiative, what's behind China's involvement on the continent and developing world more generally. Why is it their strategy for the 21st century to engage developing countries the way they are and see if that helps us to better understand the regime? Because it seems to me that what we've done a terrible job of, particularly in the United States, is understanding this regime and predicting its future behavior. 
Ten years ago, nobody would have predicted that China would have returned to a more or less a one-man show. In fact, ten years ago, that was not even on the radar, even for the most pessimistic of liberals. The most pessimistic of people ten years ago in Washington were simply saying that China would muddle through with consultative uh, autocracy. The more optimistic said that China would actually reform in a democratic way, and even and others said the Communist Party couldn't even make it that far. But we've been surprised, and we need to be more modest about it. I think the one thing that I'm proud about is that while many of us got the China-U.S. relationship wrong, I'm proud to say that Ambassador Shin and I, I believe, did get the China-Africa relationship more right. But I do think that when I read a lot of the books that were written ten years ago, that are supposed to be important books, they weren't talking about the debt issue, which is now front and center. So I think there's. You're right to say this. 2018 is an important tipping point in the relationship. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Wits China Africa or visit AfricaChinaReporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. What we've seen over the last while is increasing attention being paid to the China-Africa relationship in Washington, and you know, so the Trump administration has interestingly kind of ratcheted up discussion of the relationship. And there was today, I think, announcements or yesterday that there is going to be investigations in Washington about the extent of the of the relationship. What do you make of this attention being paid to the relationship in Washington? Not much. I just don't think it's all that important. I mean, yeah, Tillerson went there to Africa. He made some comments and was like fired by tweet the next day. So I think that the issue is the military side. If China is going to go around Africa setting up bases, and well, Djibouti already, and maybe Walvis Bay, and maybe I don't know where next they're planning, but I think it's the military side that's going to get the U.S. dander up. Where basically we don't exist in the political relationship because electoral parties don't spend money courting foreign parties; they spent money on elections. So we're not competing with them in the political sense that we're working with the ruling party of Sierra Leone, you know, to win the, their election. That's not what the U.S. does. We're too inward focused politically for that, but I do think that if China is rapidly expanding its military, and you know, and by this I mean traditional military presence, not just you know private security firms looking after Chinese interests, but if China goes around setting up bases all、uh, in Africa and expanding the military relationship in ways that challenge the U.S., I think that's going to be where the U.S. is going to be become concerned because I'm reminded of comments that John Kerry gave in his confirmation. Where he was talking about how the U.S. has to challenge China in Africa. Hey, look, you know, you mentioned before how low and how unimportant Africa is for China's trade relationship. It's even lower and less important for the U.S. So it's not as if U.S. businesses or infrastructure. We don't even build infrastructure in our own country, let alone going to Africa to do it. So I only see the military side becoming an area of possible tension. And I would argue that the Chinese should be very aware of that because I don't understand why they need a large military presence on the continent. I think that if they do it, they do it because it would be like an accoutrement of great power status. And to me, that's insufficient reason, especially given the history of colonialism on the continent. To me, such things can only engender discontent both at the local and international level. So. I do hope that friends in Beijing are being very cautious with regard to the military side, because I would not like to see a China-Africa relationship that's highly militarized. 
To me, I think that would um, that doesn't actually serve anybody's interests over the long term. And it certainly could create the great game issues that we've seen in the past in Africa that were so detrimental to Africans. So anyway, I mean, yeah, I'm sorry, just explain something to me, because, you know, we Americans are, are quite a sensitive bunch when it comes to military affairs. And, and this is remarkable, given the fact that the United States has 38 known bases around the world. And I say known because there are a number of other unknown and unclassified and classified bases around the world. The United States spends more than the next 10 countries combined on its military. It's on a level of sophistication that nobody has ever come close to. The Chinese have one overseas base. And yet Devin Nunez in the Congress is talking about how the Chinese now are challenging American hegemony in the region. It just seems overkill when Americans talk about military engagement from the Chinese or a challenge from the Chinese in places like Africa. The Chinese are pathetic when it comes to comparing to the United States and its logistics, its communications infrastructure, its, uh, you know, go down the list of what the U.S. advantages are militarily, and the Chinese are, are nowhere close to that. So I'm just wondering, why do Americans, particularly political leaders like Rex Tillerson and Devin Nunez, and even some in the academia, I won't even talk about Gordon Chang and the coming fall of China for the past 25 years, but nonetheless, this idea that, you know, the sky is falling because the Chinese have one military base. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that. And I would say that, one, the U.S. is hypersensitive on this issue, and that's related to a whole bunch of other things that we can talk about. But it's a trend line issue. So just like uh, a few years ago, you looked at newspapers, and newspapers were some of the most profitable things that you could invest in, but the trend lines were all bad. People were buying less newspapers, newspapers were kind of falling out of favor, and now oh, hardly anybody buys them. But people, even when they were very profitable, were running out of newspaper stocks because they saw the trend line. And I think that when you've got, in 1974, Deng Xiaoping standing in front of the UN saying, we will never set up military bases, and if we do, you should join with other people to combat that. Uh, we will never become a social imperialist country country if we do join with the Chinese people to overthrow us. And now we have a trend line which leads China to be doing things like setting up the ports in Gwadar, Sri Lanka, around the Indian Ocean, of course, in Djibouti, and now others being contemplated. It seems to me that it's not so much a matter of the total capacity at this point as a matter of the trend line of China's engagement in particularly the Indian Ocean, which Ambassador Shin has written extensively on, is upsetting, particularly the Indians, you know, it is named after them, after all. And it is it kind of, I wouldn't say it's changing the balance of power, because I don't really like that term. But the trend line of it suggests that it, we're going to see more of this going forward, not less of it. For instance, we see China's involvement in anti-piracy missions has continued, despite that there are no pirates anymore in that area. So, you know, people would say it's not necessarily about the capacity at this moment. It's about, you know, say 10 years ago, 20 years ago, nobody even knew what the Nine Dash Line was because it was such an artifact of history. But yet it was pulled back out of the archives. I made a central issue. We see island building in the South China Sea. So I think when people look back 10 years ago, they were flippant about what China was intending to do in the South China Sea. And so they're once bit twice shy. They don't want to get burned again, looking at China's expansion of military externally in other places, particularly in this case in Africa. Now, that being said, I think it's important to remember that Asia and Africa are two different places. 
and China does not have territorial claims in Africa, certainly the way it does in the South China Sea, which are longstanding claims, even if I think that they're uh, not necessarily correct at all times, but they are longstanding, whereas China does not have such claims in Africa. So I think that the issue is about trends, and it's also about a hyper-militarized U.S. foreign policy, which is looking to some degree to identify possible emerging threats at all times. That's part of what the Office of Net Assessment and others do. They're always looking for emerging threats. And so I would suggest that China would be well served to, at least in this context, continue to bide its time and hide its capabilities and take a lower profile, because it seems to me that there's no reason that I can tell at this point to expand military relations at the expense of the U.S.-China relationship. If you know the U.S. is hypersensitive on these issues, why give Devin Nunes cannon fodder that he you know, is so dearly looking for and others? Uh, why not just find a way to be opportunistic, which is what the Chinese side has done to a great success, in my opinion, in Africa. They've been very opportunistic in the best of ways for their interests. And so it seems to me that what they shouldn't do is just for the sake of accruing some kind of accoutrement of great power status, build military bases or push that over militarization of the relationship. Similarly, when you look at the sale of arms to Africa, we also see a great expansion of Chinese arms sales to Africa, and I think that's concerning as well. Meanwhile, we do have expansion of peacekeeping missions, uh, which the U.S. has been reluctant to get involved in. Uh, we finance them, but we don't actually do them. So, you know, China's been opportunistic. China's been smart to this date, and I just think that basing is not necessary. And so, you know, I don't see the benefit, but I see the cost. I want to ask you another like, somewhat absurdly wide question. Through the years, Eric and I have put in a lot of work to try and create some complexity in how people talk about China. You know, Because in Africa, frequently, there is this way of talking about China or the Chinese as if they're one monolithic entity. And we, you know, kind of put in a lot of effort to try and say, look, no, it's state-owned enterprises, it's the party, it's the government, it's private enterprises, large ones and small ones, it's individual migrants and so on and so on. But now, with Xi Jinping suspending term limits and his general kind of, you know, the movement he's going into is one of increasing centralization where, you know, even more than before, a lot of what China does in the world runs through the party and is conditioned by the party. How do you see in Africa the role of China as an actor changing? Do you foresee that this centralization and and strengthening of central party control, will that change the way that China is in Africa? Or is it going to be roughly the same kind of almost chaotic kind of ad hoc acting by a billion different actors that we've seen up to now? Well, you know, as I said at the start, what goes on politically in China, I believe, is the primary driver of China's policies in Africa. So the answer in short is very much yes, it will. And we've already seen it in your comments. I think you referenced it. We're going to see a more centrally driven policy. We already see a kind of combination, combining of the United Front tactics, which were so successful in China in winning China for the Communist Party of China, expanded outwardly and mixed more integrally with foreign policy. So, you know, I think there's a mistake a lot of us in the West often make. When China says something is people-to-people diplomacy, uh, we think it's funded by people. In, in China, obviously, it's not. It's funded by the party. So Chinese acrobat troops and film festivals and all of this uh, Confucius Institutes, these are all party-driven, party-run. And so it would be impossible that the party's changing internally would not influence its external behavior. Because at the end of the day, it's the party running these things. And if the party changes, then what it does changes. So I think that it's inevitable that we're going to see a change here. 
And what we see in the U.S. anyway is a lagged effect where we as Americans don't recognize changes in China until it's too late um, or uh, maybe not too late, but until it's it maybe gone on for a couple, three years. You know, people in Washington who are generalists, I think we're very late to the game in understanding what Xi Jinping was up to and who he was as a leader. People who should have known better were suggesting that this was a liberal reformer, you know, for far too long. And I think that problem, and I don't want to speak for all Africans, but it's probably compounded in Africa where the number of sinologists is very few and where China has, in many cases, you know, providing information to African news media outlets. But what we have seen is an expansion in Australia in particular, but we're seeing this increasingly in Africa, of the embassy and other official channels contacts and expansion into Chinese local communities. And that, in a way, is, I would say, somewhat dangerous for local communities because they already face questions about whether they're going to integrate um, as Chinese communities have faced in the U.S. and other places. And to be seen as very closely tied to official Chinese channels means that they're vulnerable if something were to happen from the Chinese government, that they're not seen as Zambians or Tanzanians. They're seen as Chinese. They're seen as the other. They're seen as, you know, people who are not us. And they already suffer from that problem simply because of ethnic and racial reasons and linguistic reasons. But the closer these communities are seen tied to Chinese official channels, the more that questions surviving, for example, debt and other problems in the relationship may be hoisted onto these communities, which are actually have nothing to do with these problems at all. And Chinese communities, as I understand it, are coming under a great deal of pressure in some African countries. They've faced riots, they've faced boycotts, they've faced maltreatment. And, you know, it's not necessarily fair that they be blamed. Now, we saw this in the U.S. during World War II with the mistreatment of Japanese because of what their government was doing in part because the Japanese government was engaging these communities and trying to basically, you know, influence them. And that led to a maltreatment of the entire Japanese community. And so I hope that the Chinese government is aware that if it engages these communities in ways which essentially try to utilize them as a tool of the party state, they are placing them in great jeopardy. And in fact, perhaps even enhancing the possibility that the government itself will have to have some kind of bailout of these people in the future as happened in Libya. Now, in Libya, it's a different situation entirely. But the fact is sure. that the more vulnerable these people are, the more the Chinese government will have to respond to that vulnerability. And we've seen the Wolf Warrior 2 movie. And so we know that there's this angst in China about the defense of Chinese people abroad. And so this is a tough issue. But, but you say angst, issue. but it's also a strong driver of nationalist pride here, too, that the Chinese military can deploy itself to intervene to save Chinese nationals overseas. And so there, there's an upside to it. I mean, that's certainly what Wolf Warrior 2 was going for. Well, yes, you know, China is a socialist country bounded by nationalism, right? So that means that these kinds of Rocky or Rambo type movies, you know, are really finding residence in, uh, among the people who have been educated on a diet of Chinese nationalism and, and our time has come. And so it's not surprising that a movie like this gets the kind of response that it did. But it does suggest a, an issue that Ambassador Shin and I found when we did our interviews uh, in China, we did 85 interviews over the summer, is that a real tension has developed among the non-interference principle that China has long touted and the desire of a lot of Chinese to ensure that they are well protected on the continent. Um, and so the Chinese government is facing a tension here between these two issues. It doesn't want to be accused of letting Chinese people you know, face danger and not coming to their rescue. At the same time, it doesn't want to end up in a political turmoil or a political crisis 
because of an over-intervention that led to injuries or even deaths on the African side and then do some damage to the political relationship. So this kind of tension, I think, is very real right now. And it's reflective of China's expanding uh, presence on the continent in a military, um, in an economic sense. And you know, historically, if we could step back into history, the opium war was driven fundamentally by an economic issue. It was dope, but it was an economic issue the way the British saw it that drove a political conflict, which drove a military conflict. So history is replete with examples of economics driving political and military conflict. And so I would just say the Chinese side has to be very conscious of that. And I think they have been to this point. And I hope that in a drive for nationalism, they don't kind of overlook the lessons that they heated for so long to their great benefit on the continent. Joshua Eidsman is an assistant professor at the University of Texas in Austin. Longhorns, right? Yep. Go Longhorns. Hook them. Okay. Go Longhorns. Uh, in the LBJ School of Public Affairs. And he's also a senior fellow for China Studies at the American Foreign Policy Council in Washington, D.C., you know, I'm sorry, Josh, that we can't go on longer, but we've had two shows that have gone on way past our normal time, and our show length keeps going up, 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 and I would love to be able to continue our discussion because it's so fascinating. You brought up so many great points, which just means we have to have you back again very, very soon. If you'd like to check out the book that we've been referencing, China and Africa, A Century of Engagement, although it was written back in 2012... It is still the primer that everybody should be reading about the basis and the history going back 100 years of China-Africa relations. You know, Josh, when I bought the book, it was 50 bucks. Is it come down in price at all? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because that was a major issue and we tried to get, you know, Pen Press to release a paper copy. So here's what I've got for you. First, it hasn't been mentioned, but I just had a new book uh, co-edited with Eric Higginbotham called China Steps Out, uh, Beijing's Major Power Engagement with the Developing World. And that has a chapter from Ambassador Shin and I that basically brings everything up to date. And so I would commend that to your readers. That was published by Rutledge last month. And Ambassador Shin and I uh, have a contract from uh, Penn Press. So we're moving forward with another book on the Paul Mill relationship. So there's going to be plenty of uh, work out there you know, on this issue. It's one of the issues of our time. And I commend you guys for all of your hard work in keeping it fresh and making sure that people are paying attention. Likewise. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate it. We can't wait to have you back. Thank you so much. Copas, so many of the themes that Joshua is bringing up echo what Howard French has written in his latest book about the new imperial era in China. In so many ways, this is very, very important for people to understand, because I think when we hear about the imperial era in the context of Africa, we think about imperialism. And that was something that Josh really wanted to make sure that we don't confuse European imperialism, which was very kind of outbound, going to other countries to colonize and conquer, compared with Chinese imperial eras where leaders and from other countries come to China. And that's what's happening now more and more. And it's just this is such a fundamental principle of understanding how the Chinese see the world and how Xi Jinping in many ways is the new emperor in China. Of course, he does not now have to confront term limits. He does not have to deal with a changing of power anymore. He is in power for the indefinite future. And in so many ways, I agree with Josh about how we are seeing this new imperial era in China, and that will have very, very profound consequences for Africa. And I really hope that people and policymakers in African capitals are studying this, because if you misunderstand it and read this incorrectly, you will be held at a very, very serious disadvantage. Yeah, it's very difficult, I think, to, to have that conversation in Africa because African experience was so shaped by European imperialism. 
So the discourse that we've been fighting with for such a long time, the idea that China is a new colonial power in Africa, you know, there's so much problems with that. And one of the problems is that it is completely assumes that the only form of being an imperial power is the European model. You know, the one where, for example, representatives would come and interfere directly with politics in a colony far away. The Chinese model is completely different, but it's also completely unknown in Africa. And I think it is time for African countries to become a lot more literate about Chinese history. And I would also, you know, and hopefully we can do that in a future podcast, I would very much like to unpack that idea a lot more. You know, on one hand, I can see how something like how, you know, a lot of African countries are moving into a new phase of indebtedness, and that indebtedness is related to China. So a lot of African countries are going to have a lot of debt with China for a long time. And that, you know, could be discussed in terms of them setting up this new kind of relationship where they would have to do things like visit Beijing on a regular basis and play nice. But I would like to see it unpacked a lot more in a lot more detail to see to which extent is this narrative of Chinese history, to which extent is applicable to now and, to, and which aspects of it is not applicable to now. Well, there's a lot that is applicable now. And again, I cannot recommend highly enough Howard French's new book. I don't have it off the top of my head, but just search for Howard French. And he talks about the mandate of heaven. And this is where a lot of outside observers misunderstand and misread China. So they talk about this level of debt in Africa and that a lot of people say, if an African country defaults on the debt, the Chinese are going to come after the resources. Cobus, I don't actually think that's where the Chinese are going to go. Remember what Josh said in our discussion earlier. He said that everything begins with politics in China. Politics drives this, not economics. And that's something that is fundamentally different than during the colonial era, where it was very much an economic-driven agenda. So in exchange for debt forgiveness, maybe you have to vote with the Chinese at the UN on the South China Sea as Rwanda had to kind of, you know, usher a testimonial. Maybe you have to support the one China policy much more vigorously. Your sovereignty, your agency gets eroded. And this kind of circles back to this imperial era discussion that we're talking about, which is that you become a tribute state to the Chinese, where the Chinese will maintain a power because they have the leverage in the form of the debt. So that's just one way that this can manifest itself. But the most important takeaway from all of this is that they are not playing by the same rule book that I think a lot of Africans and Westerners are accustomed to from the pre-20th century Westphalian era relationship between states and among states. And this is a new, new, new way of interacting. So obviously, this is a topic we're going to, to discuss further. We've invited Howard French to join us on a show to talk about this very subject of the new imperial era, the mandate of heaven, and this idea of tribute states, so that we might be able to help educate ourselves and also a lot of our African listeners to what is going on in China today under the rule of Xi Jinping, which is a very different type of Chinese leadership than what we've seen over the past 25 years. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus Fenstaden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.